Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Now let's listen to Pastor Dave Crocker. Historically speaking, Nero, an emperor of Rome, became a footnote in the story of Christianity. That's unbelievable. What about Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus was the first Roman Empire emperor. Do you know that Caesar Augustus made all kinds of reforms in Rome? And unless you're a history teacher or a history student, you study history, you probably couldn't tell me a single reform that Caesar Augustus made. But every single Christmas, in languages you've never even heard of, in countries you've never visited, his name is mentioned not because of his great accomplishments. Caesar Augustus has become a footnote in the story of a Jewish carpenter. Are you kidding me? Did you know that for 300 years after Jesus was crucified, there wasn't a Bible? No one got up on a Sunday morning or a Saturday in their case, perhaps, and said, we're going to turn to the book of Ephesians today, beginning in chapter 3. There were no Sunday school classes. There were no Bible colleges. In fact, for three, closer to 400 years, if we're not being overly conservative, there was no Bible. There wasn't even something called the New Testament until 250 years after the death of Jesus Christ. How did the church survive all that? How did the church survive Rome? How did the church survive the Jews who saw Christianity as a knockoff of Judaism? So Rome and the Jewish authorities, they ganged up together to stomp out this thing called the way. And now there's no Roman Empire. And there are far, far more Christians on this planet than there ever are Jews. It's history's great mystery. Now, here's what's not a mystery. If you study how religions began or how change takes place in nations, there's patterns, there's an art to it, kind of a science. There are people that study this kind of thing and they've discovered patterns throughout history of how these things take place and it's repeated time and time and time again. How do nations shift? How values rise and fall within people groups and tribes and nations? And generally here's what happens. There's unrest. Within the the confines of the group we're talking about, there's there's a, a dissatisfaction with what's happening and there's factions and there's divisions. And then a very charismatic leader, more often than not in history, a man, he surfaces and he begins to say things that people gravitate to. He comes with words and sentences and phrases and thoughts and people say, that's what I'm thinking. He's saying the things that I believe. And so they begin to listen and follow this man. And they introduce change. And there's usually an old guard who want to maintain the status quo and things take a while. But if eventually if there's enough momentum, change takes place. And the old 
guards change the, the thinking into the new way. And this person becomes a hero or a legend. And eventually this person dies. And the people gather around and they say, we need to keep this dream alive. And so the ideas are carried forward into the next generation, the next generation, and the next generation. And this happens all the time. This is how the world has changed. Let me give you some examples. Firstly, Islam. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the prophet Muhammad. It's quite a fascinating story. Before Muhammad surfaced in the Arab nations, or really the Arab tribes, they worshipped idols. Then one day this man came from a cave and began to speak to them saying he'd, been, he'd met with an angel and an angel had given him some insights and he began to share these teachings with his friends and his family and his village and eventually in the region he was from and his wider community. And he was an incredibly gifted leader and people responded to his message. And before long, he had a following. He had groups of people listening to what he said. And it grew, and it grew, and eventually he had an army. And then he turned these Arab tribes from polytheism, worshipping idols, to monotheism. They worshipped a single deity. He organised this group of people who had never had religious texts before and began to lead them. Then, In 632 AD, about 600 years after the death of Christ, Muhammad died of natural causes. And his followers got got together. And they said, we've got to keep this alive. And, And there was a group that said, it needs to be a direct family line. We need to take one of his children and they should lead this movement. And, And there was another group that said, no, it needs to be a political leader. And there was great division amongst the people. Today we have the Sunni and Shiite Muslim factions that populate Islam. This one man with some radical ideas changed the nation as it influenced the world. He galvanised the people. In more recent times, in America we have the civil rights movement. We're all familiar with kind of the principles that were taking place. The nation was divided over racism and what to do with this group of African-Americans who wanted a greater voice, who wanted equality, wanted to be treated like everybody else, and they wanted and deserved equal treatment as citizens of America. There were people who rose up and said some things and promised some things, but change was slow in getting started. But then one man came along, a man by the name of Martin Luther King Jr., who gave up his promising career as an educator, perhaps later on would destined to become a pastor, and he moved to a place called Montgomery, Alabama, the very centre of the conflict of the civil rights movement. And he came with some new ideas. Well, I guess they're not really new ideas. He resurfaced an old idea, and he said this will be a movement of non-violence. And the followers, those that were closest to him, said at the time that he rose up, many of them weren't non-violent. But King said that 
This movement is going to transform this nation and it'll be a nation, a movement of non-violence. And the people rallied behind him. And then tragically, in 1968, he died violently. But that wasn't the end of the movement. Those that had been around him took up the challenge and continued to lead the thing in the way that Martin Luther King Jr. had set up. The status quo was eventually left behind. The old guard began to change. There's a pattern in how these things happen. Now, if you take that pattern of change and transformation of ideas populating throughout a culture, you take that pattern and you try to transpose it over the story of Christianity, it doesn't work. In fact, no reputable historian would take the common transitions that happen within cultures and use as an explanation for the rise of Christianity. And that's the reason I call it history's great mystery. It's because we know we're here. We know a third of the world's population believe in Jesus. We know that a handful of survivors somehow made it through first century and survived the Roman Empire, survived Judaism, and multiplied to the point where there was these little churches all over the Mediterranean. And now 2,000 years later, here are we. We know what happened. That's undeniable. The question is, how in the world did it happen? And the how doesn't match the paradigm that we would normally expect. And the reason it doesn't fit, the reason it doesn't work to view the rise of Christianity like we would view the rise of any other movement is this. Jesus' message. Jesus' message was the problem. Jesus never advocated any kind of liberation. He never spoke for any kind of revolution. His message was the problem. Every once in a while, someone would try to pit Jesus against Rome. They'd they'd try to set him up as anti-Rome. Jesus' message was simple. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. And they'd say, "Now, now Jesus, you talk of this kingdom. Are you trying to start a new kingdom? And Jesus would disappoint them and say, oh, did I forget to tell you? This kingdom's not even of this world. Pilate, you don't need to be threatened by me. Rome, you you don't need to be threatened by me. My kingdom's not even of this world. To the point that when Pilate had Jesus on trial, he came out to the people and said, seriously, I can't find a single thing to convict this man of. I can't even accuse him. He's not a revolutionary. He's not introducing some kind of new idea. In terms of Judaism, every time they tried to trap Jesus, Jesus said, no, no, I'm not trying to overthrow the Jewish law. I'm not trying to overturn Jewish traditions. I'm here to keep the law and you should keep the law. No one should abandon the law because the law came from God in the first place. In fact, Jesus takes the law and increases the standard. So there was no talk of insurrection around Jesus. There was no talk of liberation around Jesus. He wasn't a revolutionary trying to introduce something. The other thing that doesn't fit is that Jesus' message was all about Jesus. And this set him apart from everybody who's come along before or since Jesus. And it's the primary problem. He never asked his followers to put their trust in his ideas. 
He never once said, I've got some great slogans, some great thoughts, some great concepts. If you just trust in these things, it'll work. He instructed his followers to put their trust in him. There's a story where a really close friend of Jesus, a guy by the name of Lazarus, is sick and dying. And they call for Jesus and say, will you come and, and do something? We know that you can heal him of this sickness. And Jesus delays going and delays going and delays going and Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up and whole story around what happens we won't go into this morning, but Jesus doesn't come and say, look, for years and years and years to come, they're going to talk about this awesome miracle in this moment. They're going to, it's just going to be this incredible story. Jesus comes and he says this to the, the, those who are gathered, I am the resurrection and the life. He centered it upon himself. And that's the problem that makes the rise of Christianity absolutely unexplainable. Except for the very thing we celebrate on this weekend. One day Jesus and his guys are hanging out together and they're by this town, Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar Augustus. He died about 15 years before this scene takes place and they've renamed the city after him. And Jesus is talking about him and they say, well, we know who Caesar was, but who do people say I am? And you might remember this. Peter says, I think you're Christ, Messiah. I think you're the son of the living God. And Jesus didn't say, well, hold on a minute now. Just calm down, Peter. We don't need to be talking quite like that. Jesus said, you're right. And not only are you right, Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own. God told you that. And that's a problem. When Jesus first walked into the public eye, there's this guy on the scene already, John the Baptist. And John's baptising people and one day Jesus is coming to John and, and John stops the crowd and he goes, he, what he doesn't say is, behold, here comes someone who's going to explain how your sins are forgiven. Someone who's going to help you understand who the Lamb of God is and what that's all about. John the Baptist says, behold, that guy, that one there, Jesus, he is the Lamb of God, which is who has come to take away the sins of the world. The whole message was centred on Jesus. And that's the problem. Jesus' message wasn't about ideas. Jesus' message was about Jesus. Never once did Jesus or any of his followers indicate that Jesus came to leave us with a collection of insights, of parables, of principles to pass on to the next generation. None of his followers ever indicated or implied that he came to leave us with some new teaching that we could pass on to the next generation. The problem with the message of Jesus was Jesus himself was the message. It wasn't liberating to a group of people. It wasn't revolutionary. He didn't try to launch something new. He didn't try to even overturn anything within the culture. And he kept talking about himself. And when he died, their hopes died with him. And when Jesus died, there wasn't a single person standing at the cross going, well, now that he's dead, it's our responsibility to take this message and carry it going. 
Because Jesus was so much at the centre of his teaching, there was nothing to pass on to the next generation. There was no teaching that would have made any sense with the death of Jesus. And when Jesus died, no one believed his message. No one. When Jesus died, no one took his claims seriously. When Jesus died, unlike any other leader we celebrate, when Jesus died, the movement died with him because he was the movement. He was the message. He was the centre. It wasn't about principles and ideas. It was about Jesus. In fact, it's so interesting that even before Jesus was crucified, his closest friends and followers had abandoned him. And this is why it's important. And you guys don't think about stuff like this because you've got jobs to do and kids to raise. So people like me sit around and think about things like this. But here's something for you to think about. The very people, very people that brought us the story of Jesus, that wrote the gospel message that we have, wrote themselves into the story as cowards. Now, when you write a fictitious story, when you're making something up, you don't identify yourself as the coward in the story. We don't watch a movie or read a book and find the coward and go, that's the person I want to be. We write ourselves in as the heroes of the story. We find a way of making ourselves look good, but these writers did not do that. In fact, Peter, who said you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter's sitting by a fire and a schoolgirl comes along and says to him, hey, you're one of those Jesus followers, you're a... Nazarene, you're a Galilean, you were with him, weren't you? And Peter doesn't just say no. Peter says, I didn't even know him. When Jesus was arrested, they lost their faith. When Jesus died, the movement died with him. Listen to me this morning. There were no Christians at the cross. There were no Jesus followers after the crucifixion because messiahs don't die. And Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Sons of God can't be killed and Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. The resurrection and the life can't be hung on a cross and Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life. So the mystery is how in the world after a man who associated himself with a message was crucified, how is it that we're even here today? How is it that one third of the world still calls on his name and claims him Lord? How is it that this crazy movement that died when he died survived the first century? And Easter solves history's great mystery. And here's how it unfolds. If you've got your Bibles this morning, you might like to turn with me to John chapter 20, but it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's read. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Right. Early in the morning, in, in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, tells us that because these women had come to the tomb while it was still dark, you see, Jesus had been wrapped the night before by two men and the woman have just assumed if the men did the job, they probably didn't do it right and we need to re-wrap him because we all know men can't wrap things. 
And so they've showed up. The men the night before, it was a rush. It was Passover. It was dark. They weren't allowed to work, so they got the job done. And Mary showed up the next day to finish the job and do it properly. Mary Magdalene. The Bible tells us that Mary was the first one to discover that the tomb was empty. And that's a problem. It's a problem because in Jewish culture, women had absolutely no legal standing. You could not use a woman as a legal basis in a case. Her testimony was invalid. It didn't matter what she saw or what she said. It had absolutely no standing. And if they were making this up, they would have found any way possible to have written Mary out of the story. They would never have mentioned a woman because they knew that the people that were reading this would have absolutely 100% discounted everything that Mary had said because she had no standing. The only reason that the gospel writers have used, talked about the fact that Mary discovered the tomb was because Mary discovered the tomb. Can we put the next slide up, please, Alison? So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, John, and said, they, I don't know who they are, but they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. It's interesting. Mary sees the empty tomb and for a moment she doesn't stop and go, it's the resurrection. He's risen. Because they thought he had died and they thought he was going to stay dead. Their saviour, this Jesus had died, the movement was over, it was done and dusted. And so Mary's first thought is, they've taken his body. There was no one standing outside the tomb with the tents and the band and the music going, 10, 9, 8. There was no celebration, there was no one there, there wasn't a single person because Jesus had died. And Luke chapter 20 and verse 11 tells us how the men responded to Mary's message. We'll put it up on the screen for you. It says this, But they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them to be like nonsense. In other words, you're crazy. You've found the wrong tomb. You've done the wrong thing. No wonder we don't let women testify in court. They didn't believe them. And so men being men, we've got to go and solve this problem ourselves. So they start running towards the tomb. We'll carry on. So Peter and the other disciple, this is John talking about himself. The other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Next one. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. John Arrived there first, quite a bit ahead of Peter. He looks in the tomb, but he doesn't go into the tomb. Do you know why he didn't go into the tomb? Because it's a tomb. Who wants to walk into a tomb? Anyway, we'll carry on. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. That's Peter, brash, straight in there. And he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around the head of Jesus. Keep going. The cloth was still lying in the place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. John suddenly 
got his courage back. And in he goes. Next slide. He saw and he believed. Do you know when John believed? John didn't believe when he heard all the teachings of Jesus. John didn't believe hanging out in the three years with Jesus. He didn't believe at the moment of the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. The followers of Jesus didn't believe because of the message of Jesus. His followers didn't re-engage because of something Jesus taught. His followers re-engaged because of something they saw. The living Jesus. This is fascinating. After Jesus rose from the dead, these cowards that had run and hidden in fear, these men who didn't expect a resurrection, that everything they'd hoped for had died and all of a sudden they've seen the living Jesus and they believe. It all suddenly has made sense to them. These men who had been fearful and hiding suddenly go out into the streets to carry a message of faith. And they didn't go out and preach the principles of Jesus. They didn't talk about the parables of Jesus. They didn't go out and preach about the love of Jesus. They went into the streets of Jerusalem. You find this in the book of Acts. And they had a four-point message. Number one, you killed him. Now, they're talking to the people that were there. The people that were present at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The people that had gathered together and yelled, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. This is not years after the event. This is two, maybe three weeks afterwards. And their four-point message was really simple. You killed him, God raised him, we've seen him, now say you're sorry. That was their message. You killed him, God raised him, we've seen him, now repent and say you're sorry. (laughs) And one of his messages, Peter said it this way. Think how bold this is. This is in Acts Three, this is Peter who ran. This is Peter who denied knowing Jesus. This is Peter who fled. This is Peter who was afraid to be associated with Jesus after the crucifixion. He said, you killed. These were the men who were part of the crucifixion, part of the trial. And Peter said, you killed the author of life, but God raised them from the dead. How do we know we are witnesses of this? They'd seen the resurrected Jesus and it changed everything for them. The message completely changed for them when they encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ. In another message in the first few weeks after Jesus is risen from the dead, they've come from the upper room where they've encountered the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire and and they come down and, and, and the people started believing and they believed Matthew and they believed Peter and they believed John. And finally, they said, what should we do? There are too many people running around the city saying they've seen Jesus for us not to believe. In Acts chapter 2, this is what Peter replied. Repent and be baptised. Every single one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ solves history's great mystery. How did the church survive? How did the movement begin? How did the movement move through the first, second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth centuries? Why is it that a third of the world's population call on him as Lord? It wasn't because he had good things to say. A group of people thought, We've got to keep his teaching in circulation because when Jesus died, there were no believers. When Jesus died, the movement died. And what re-engaged his followers with his teaching wasn't his teaching, it was his resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only solves history's great mystery, the resurrection of Jesus Christ more importantly punctuates the point of his crucifixion, which is the forgiveness of sin. So here's what that means for us. Your hope is not in vain. It means that when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, there is a resurrection and life. And it means that the people that you've lost, the people that you've loved, if Jesus told us the truth, you will be reunited with them one day. And how do you know why I know to believe that? Because if someone can predict their own death and crucifixion and resurrection and pull it off, I believe whatever that guy says. And all the scriptures tell us. And the New Testament writers who knew him tell us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him, in his ideas, in his teachings, in his revolutionary thoughts. No, whoever believes in him will gain and receive eternal life. And we know that not because he was a good teacher. We know that not because he was crucified. We know that because he was raised from the dead and he was seen. And that is why Easter is the greatest celebration on the Christian calendar. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that your resurrection changed everything. Thank you that it's not about good ideas or principles or parables or teachings. God, it's about your son, Jesus, and we centre our hearts on him today. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org. www.cofcpenrith.org.